The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. It's 500 degrees in Washington, D.C. right now. If you step outside, you'll burst into flames (laughs) immediately. It's... Pretty, pretty awful. Uh, so that's why we're here inside, uh, even though it's the beginning of September. Should be feeling all back to schooly. We should all be wearing sweaters and have new lunch boxes. Uh, we are joined by two people uh, who lead uh, in all sorts of trends like that, and I'm sure we're the best equipped people in their elementary schools. Corey Shockey of the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I'm exceedingly well. Thank you, David. Excellent. And Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School. How are you, Rosa? I'm very well, David, except in a misguided effort to counteract the hot weather by turning on my sprinkler system. I just managed to completely soak myself. That's actually very smart. It's a misguided... (laughs) Well, not really. (laughs) In multiple ways, it's totally misguided, but that's okay. Yeah. It cooled me off. Yeah, I always have this feel like, how is it that somebody who's like superannuated like me, it gets to be like, you know, the beginning of September like this. And I think, well, I should be going back to school. I mean, <laughs> I should have a new lunchbox. You know, it's like, it's just the year sort of seems like it should begin in September. Did you always have like... It does, but but you know what's outrageous and wrong. I'll share with you one of the deep wrongs of the universe. I, I grew up uh, in a place where school never started until after Labor Day. And here in these southern climes, at least, uh, school always starts in the middle of August. And despite the fact that I've been teaching at a school that starts in the middle of August for 20 years now, every single summer, I'm shocked. I'm like, what? How, how is this happening? It's just deeply, deeply wrong. Share that view. So we've Sh- been at school already. This is like week three. Yeah. Sure. Did, did you go to school in, in California, Corey, and, and, you know, have to pick grapes in the morning? <laughs> I did go to school in California, and uh, but I will spoil the entire jubilant atmosphere by saying I think kids should have to go to school year round. Now that we are no longer an agricultural economy, we should improve their education by, you know, sprinkling 
holidays through the year and not giving them three months to, as I always do, go feral in the summer. You know, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think we could have a little fun Speaking here. Speaking as we, a parent, I agree. Well, no, as but we could play no, a game. A parent, there, are, yes. there are a bunch of policies that make absolute sense that if you supported them, you would be political toast, no matter how rational they are. Another one of those policies um, is um, raising the retirement age. People don't die at age 65. I mean, you, you would you would be toast politically if you say this. Although I think Nikki Haley just said it, but it's crazy, right? I mean, wh- yes, why is the, the only age- way to keep discretionary spending from being squeezed out of the federal budget is if we raise the retirement age and perk it in slowly enough, which means you have to do it soon and let it perk in so that people don't get surprised and and impoverished by not having an expected 65-year-old retirement age. We're healthier longer. Um, most of us uh, actually no longer do dangerous, physically intensive work. So maybe at least for those of us uh, who have jobs that you can continue to do, we ought to actually push our elected officials to raise their retirement age. This is very similar story, as, as Corey knows, to cost drivers within the Defense Department. Uh, you know, that many of our, I'm, a, I'm the beneficiary as a spouse of very, very generous uh, policies for veterans, retired military retirees. But these were, these were created in an era in which, you know, if you retired after 20 years in the military uh, during the period, you know, up to the first end of the first half of the 20th century, you were probably, your body was pretty broken. And the odds that you were going to live a whole lot longer after you retired were pretty low. And the odds that you would have a disability that really would prevent you from working were much, much higher. You know, today, uh, giving people extremely generous pension benefits and extremely generous disability benefits, in some cases, uh, when they're you know, going to go and live another 50 years. And this, you know, this is because of advances in medical care and advances in life expectancy, but a system that made perfect sense uh, when you could count on people to, you know, kick the bucket pretty fast. And now they're living much longer, which is a good thing, but it, the, the system is really driving costs up in a, in a way that's completely, I think, unanticipated at the time it was created. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, when the retirement age was established, and Corey will correct me on this, by Bismarck, um, uh, pe- the, people didn't live to be 65. In um, fact, the, the reason the Social Security system in our country was set at 65 by Franklin Roosevelt was in order because people's average life expectancy was 67. And so the expectation was... You have a a nice last couple of years. Exactly. Enjoy your two years of retirement. Although, you know, I had a lively discussion with a couple of people yesterday, well-intentioned couple of people. We were talking about artificial intelligence. And I was saying, you know, here is artificial intelligence. And, you know, you read books. Uh, There's a book called The Second Machine Age by Eric Brynjolfsson and Andy McAfee at MIT. Um, and others. And and the conclusion of many of these books is that a trend that began long ago is going to continue. And that trend is we will work less. Um, And one of the reasons we will work less is that more of the things that people did will be able to be done by machines. Um, And I said, you know, uh, there is... Like turning on the goddamn sprinkler. 
that it will for sure be done by a machine, but but also like being a lawyer, you know. So, uh, yeah. so sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. totally. <laughs> Already, really, I could be replaced any day by a robot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but well, and you know, you we saw the Department of Defense uh, announced Catholics announced this thing last week about autonomous weapons platforms. Um, and, uh, that would be drones, swarms of drones with AI, swarms of robots with AI, et cetera, et cetera. And we can think of a hundred things like this. And I said, and, you know, we're going to face a problem, which is there, you know, it's quite possible that there will be less work for people to do. Um, uh, and that we may have to grapple at some point with issues like universal basic income. And, you know, the, the immediate response of these two guys who are like super liberals, is, oh my God, that would be terrible. And I, I was like, I beg your pardon? He says, yeah, no, no, we get our identity from work. And if we're not working, then we will have no identity and our lives will lose meaning. And I was like, but you can write poetry. You can walk through the grass. You could lie on the you beach. You can fish in the morning and hunt yeah. in the afternoon. Yeah, well, exactly. And, you know, it used to be there weren't weekends and many places are now grappling with the idea of four-day weeks. I was like, you know, what's so bad about not working? And they're like, oh, no, we we need to work. I was like, this is crazy. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> wow. I mean, I mean, do you, do, I mean, do you need to work, Corey? <laughs> you know, my job <laughs> is basically like being on vacation. It would be very difficult to tell one from the other, um, which which is fabulous. Uh, but no, of course not. There are lots of fun things to do, lots of ways you can contribute to your community uh, that can give you important meaning in your life. Um, we don't need work for that. But the, and, and needless to say, it's, a, it's a, an attitude that not everyone has the luxury of having. Um, you know, that we are extremely fortunate, all three of us, in that in that our work is deeply meaningful to us. Uh, we choose it, we 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 like it, we may we may gripe about little things like why does the semester start in August and not September or whatever it might be, but we have an enormous amount of autonomy and enormous ability to choose what we spend our time on and how we're gonna make our money and for the vast majority of people around the world, it's not a choice. It's it's something that you're doing for for basic survival. Uh, and the notion that you would, you know, <laughs> and often that you're doing three jobs, you know, that you're doing, you're doing for 16 hours a day or some extremely punishing work. So, right. It's, it's, it's obviously, it's a, it's an attitude that, well, well, I think everybody would agree that humans want meaning. Humans don't in fact just want to lie around, you know, watching TV all day, that they get pretty unhappy when they do that. Um, they want to, they want to be making contributions that the, the notion that everyone's identity is, you know, tied to being a Walmart greeter or something. It's a, uh, fantastically uh it it, it is a, a privilege of elites to uh think this well it's a, it's also you know a, 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 a objective of elites who you know owned um as uh, rosa's good friend Karl marx used to say the means of production and <laughs> and, and, and you know that, that you know that that they would say you know yeah you know your life is is uh you know this this brings meaning to your life just like you know, a thousand years ago, you were live, working in the mud, and the local priest would come up on behalf of his friend, the local, you know, man, lord of the manor, and say, "Well, yeah, your life here sucks, but trust me, after you die, it's going to be great." 
Just follow these simple there rules. There will be universal basic income <laughs> when you die. There will be pie in the exactly, sky along exactly. with universal basic income when you die. Exactly. Although, you know, yeah. one of the things that I think about, and this is not a small, it's not a small issue. In fact, I'm like thinking about it a lot because I'm writing a book about it, is that every once in a while, big watersheds happen in history. Um, and governments scramble to figure out what the right policies are. But sometimes the consequence of big watersheds are philosophical upheavals. And and there aren't, you know, the philosophers sitting around going, well, we really need to rethink the social contract. And, you know, that happened with the Industrial Revolution, and it led to, you know, changing roles about life, and it led, you know, Karl Marx sitting in the British Library to think of one approach. And other people to 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 promote a, a, a different a kind of approach, um, and 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 we're on the verge, I think, of one of those things that is going to change the fundamental social contract. What do people do? Where does meaning of life come? What is the role of government? How does an economy work? Um, you know, what what are the ethics of warfare when one nation can launch? a robot attack against another nation that's defending itself only with people, et cetera, et cetera. And we just seem to be completely ill-prepared philosophically to grapple with this. Or do you disagree, Corey? Are we ready? No, I don't disagree. Um, What I was turning over in my mind, David, was whether it is a unique experience for societies to be surprised and shocked by revolutionary ideas or social changes or technologies that disrupt existing patterns. And my guess, um, I haven't reflected on it before, but the subject of your book is such an interesting one that it's giving me cause to reflect on it as we are talking. And it does seem to me that probably societies are never prepared and that the societies that thrive are societies that are resilient in the face of change and that one of the real challenges for governments is managing the pace of change or shaping um, social policies and public attitudes in the face of radical change and the societies that are best capable of that are actually free societies and in particular, free societies where you have federalist political structures. So you get both greater experimentation and you also get greater um, fidelity to unique local circumstances. Yes, but it has to be a truly free society. So it's not just a society that guarantees you certain freedoms under the law. It has to be a society that's actually willing to embrace change, even if it disrupts the status quo of those that are super empowered, right? And and so, you know, we saw a problem with that in the Industrial Revolution because um, half of society was still agrarian. The power structures were agrarian. And they said, let's stick with that. And the other half of society was moving on with industrialization. They were more willing to embrace that. And they said, let's try that. One half of society said, you know, we need to maintain old structures, including the loathsome practice of slavery. The other half said, no, we've got a different way to do it. And, you know, you know, 70, 80 years after 
I guess the steam engine was invented in 1776. So, you know, uh, that, you know, almost, uh, I, I guess, 85 years after all that happened, the whole country came apart in a war between two different ideas of how you deal with this new reality. Um, and that, that also happens a lot um, as, as the advocates of the status quo um, fight, fight, fight against the inevitability what is, of progress. What does this tell you that humans are an easily surprised species? I mean, we're surprised even by things that are completely predictable. Um, you know, we're always, we're always astonished when things that have been predicted for decades actually happen. We go, ah, um, so I, I, that being said though, David, I think, I think, um, I know you were interested in talking about something that you alluded to a few minutes ago, um, just, uh, one of those paradigm shifts, which we haven't figured out how to manage that I think still is, is surprising us is sort of the rise of super empowered individuals, um, and I think one of the things that makes the moment that we're we're living in now so precarious from a from a global security perspective as well as from a domestic democratic perspective um, is that we are we're prepared for certain types of threats coming from certain kinds of sources. You know, nine eleven was the big shock to the system that said, "Hey, oh look, everybody! It's not just states playing in the international arena; it's these non-state actors such as terrorist organizations." But I think I think what we have increasingly been seeing, but haven't quite adapted to, is that we now live in an era in which it's not just non-state actors such as organizations or terror groups or insurgent groups. Um, it's also super empowered individuals, people like Elon Musk, uh, who can, you know, individually, you know, a tiny, tiny number of individual people today can exercise an incredible amount of control over what information we get what information we can get out uh, over over the tools of warfare and conflict, uh, as we saw recently with Musk. So I, you know, I actually think that that is one of the biggest challenges of our time, that we now live in a globe in which states jostle for primacy, not only with one another, but with, and not only with one another, not only with non-state organizational actors, um, and large corporations that can be extraordinarily powerful, but also with these super empowered individuals, the, you know, the Jeff Bezos, the Elon Musks of the world, uh, who can exercise a degree of control over everything from information flow um, and media to technologies, uh, artificial intelligence, satellite technologies, et cetera, that's, that's unprecedented. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's true. And, you know, Corey, one of the things I, Rosa's alluding to an article which I shared with you guys, which I wrote. I don't remember when I wrote it yesterday, I guess, and it came out today about Elon Musk and his battle currently, not just with the Anti Defamation League, um, but uh, with uh, uh, folks over the way he uh, used. For example, Starlink, and he offered Starlink to the Ukrainians, and then he decided he would take it away from them when they used it in offensive operations against the Russians, or that he partnered with the Saudis. And although he says he's a free street, free speech absolutist, um, the Saudis are now putting somebody to death who had like nine Twitter followers, and he tweeted something critical. And uh, Elon Musk and the management of Twitter has kept completely silent. Um, on that issue, because the Saudis are his partners, and he's not really a free speech absolutist. And uh, and then there's the bigger issue, um, and the bigger issue is that 
you know, in the 1930s, if you were a Nazi and you wanted to have a big rally, what you did was you got some torches and some pitchforks and you went out in the streets of Bavaria and you had a march or you gathered at a beer hall, you know, you got together. Well, now the streets in which people gather are virtual streets and they're controlled sometimes by corporations and sometimes by people who can set the rules or super empower the bad actors. And Musk took over Twitter, which was one of the biggest gathering places, um, and with ostensibly a virtuous objective, more free speech, he essentially opened the floodgates of letting sort of toxic types into the mix uh, and changed the discourse. And, you know, we can debate whether that's just makes it a shitty social media site or whether it has a big political consequence, a consequence for society, where, as in the case with Trump, you all of a sudden have hateful people with hateful agendas uh, targeting other groups and all of a sudden feeling like people are with them in this um, and that that's okay. Uh, And that's one of the problems we have in the United States. You know, there may have always been a third of people who had horrible ideas, um, but all of a sudden that third of people are championed and being used for their power. And um, uh, now they feel it's okay to behave that way. Uh, and that has some horrible consequences. Do you have any thoughts on this, Corey? So a few, David. Um, first, I think you're right. We're not newly a country of crazy people run by reckless politicians. The United States has, for the majority of its history, been a country full of crazy people run by reckless politicians, which is both our great strength. It gives us dynamism. It gives us um, Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It gives us um, social malleability. Uh, it gives us an experimental perspective on the world. But it's also, um, you know, I think that's also where you get American tolerance for gun violence. I think it's where you get a whole bunch of things, but other things with very negative and damaging um, social and political consequences. One of the, I would love to read a book that explored uh, the comparability of the robber barons in the 19th century, who also provided public goods as private business, um, and the way that both labor regulation, uh, labor organization, and government regulation. turned private businesses into public businesses. Um, And because I I wonder, but do not know, whether there's a comparison to our contemporary, not just social media companies, but but regular media companies in that regard. Um, Just to take the Twitter example, or maybe the Starlink example, it doesn't strike me as problematic for it for private companies to be able to set terms of service that are offensive because you can opt out of that service provided they're not monopolies and i think what we are seeing now is the slow uh, aggravating difficult 
transition from Twitter as a virtual monopoly of commentary on the internet to everybody else trying to recreate large-scale social media without the obvious dangerous and deleterious downsides that many of them existed on Twitter before Elon Musk, but the erratic, anti-Semitic, um, you know, incitements to violence that he clearly personally supports and allows to exist on the medium are fracturing it and endangering people on it in ways that are going to cause it to collapse. And we're seeing, um, you know, the emergence of several other not yet successful alternatives. Well, that's a really good point. And I, there's something I want to add to that point, but I'm going to do that after we take our break and we say to everybody who's not a member, you really want to hear the rest of this conversation. The way to do that is if you're the me- a member. So go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, $5 a month, you become a member. We've got more and more content. So there's more and more bonus content. Uh, the price of membership has not gone up. How long can that go on? I don't know. Uh, I have set the price arbitrarily, by the way, but who knows? Uh, but uh, having said that, uh, uh, we'd like you to be here for all of it. So go become a member if you're not a member. Uh, if you're not, uh, until then, for now we say bye-bye. If you are a member, stand by. 